The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime. Hello, it's The Week in Art. I'm Ben Luke. This week, the UK is in a financial crisis and the dollar is the strongest it's been for 20 years. We find out how the art market is responding. Plus, Cecilia Vicuña at Tate Modern, women artist in the Freeze Spotlight and Modigliani in Philadelphia. I talked to Annie Shaw, a contributing editor at the art newspaper, about the atmosphere in the Freeze Art Fair tent as the UK economy struggles, the booming market for so-called ultra-contemporary art, and about a shift in the artists being bought by collectors. I talked to Cecilia Vicuña at Tate Modern as she opens the latest in a series of major international shows of her work. Our acting digital editor, Amy Dawson, talks to Camille Morineau, founder of the organisation Aware, about Spotlight, the section of Freeze Masters dedicated exclusively this year to women artists of the 20th century. And this episode's work of the week is Boy in Short Pants by Amadeo Modigliani. I talked to Simonetta Fracchelli, the co-curator of a new exhibition on Modigliani's work at the Barnes Foundation in Philadelphia about the painting. Before all that, a reminder that the latest series of our sister podcast, A Brush With, is now complete. On the podcast, I talk to leading artists in depth about the influences and cultural experiences that shape their life and work. This latest series features conversations with Glenn Brown, Annika Yee, William Kentridge and John O'Confra. So do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to hear those and to explore the catalogue of more than 50 conversations. And also subscribe to this podcast and give us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. Now, as the UK fights the fires resulting from the Chancellor Kwasi Kwarteng's disastrous mini-budget in September, the Freeze Art Fairs have opened in their usual October slot. Meanwhile, the market for young artists shows no signs of abating. I spoke to our contributing editor, Annie Shaw, at Freeze London, about the mood among dealers and collectors and what they're showing and buying this year. Annie, we're standing in the entrance to Freeze. The second day is about to start. We had a big VIP day yesterday. This is all amid this daily drip feed of economic crisis talk here in the UK. But how did you think it went yesterday? What was the mood like in Freeze? Well, I mean, I think I heard a lot of people saying this. It was possibly the busiest opening we've had in some time, if not ever. Um, There was a queue snaking out of the tent. Um, People were talking about queuing for hours. Um, Some waiting patiently, like Rishi Sunak. Others, I heard, were less patient. Some VIP collectors complaining that they... uh, they were queuing so much that they couldn't concentrate on buying the art. Some indeed walked away, I heard, um, went to Freeze Masters, came back. But yes, it was it was busy, but perhaps a bit too busy for some. Yeah, I certainly felt that it was busy. It was, it was really rammed, especially we're standing in the area right at the front of the fair. Always here is where the big galleries are. We've got Gagosian right next to us and we've got Sadie Coles here as well. And it seemed so rammed in this part of the fair. And it, look, it may be that more VIP tickets were available for yesterday, this year... I don't know, but do you think it reflects that everybody's excited about buying this year or or is is that just too neat a kind of assumption to make? I think actually there was some sort of trepidation and concern ahead of the fair um, and Freeze may have, and this is my guess, but Freeze may have oversubscribed their their VIP attendees, underestimated it, but more turned up than they had perhaps hoped. Um, That's one theory. 
uh, there's been talk of whether Americans will come. Obviously, the dollar is doing very well compared with the pound. You know, were they here for a spending spree when the dollar is so favourable? Again, you know, I I haven't heard of an enormous amount of sales going to American dealers, but it was certainly evident. I was at Housel and Worth, Amy Sherald opening on Tuesday night. There was a ton of American collectors there. Malcolm Jenkins, the former NFL player. I mean, Amy Sherald has this sort of very big star power. She, she attracts a big following and they followed her here right. um, and, and were definitely in attendance. Whether that has translated into sales, we don't yet know. But, you know, very possible. What are the galleries saying about that? Because obviously one of the interesting things is if it's a strong dollar, do galleries then change the currencies that they sell the works in to make it more favourable? Or, or are you getting any... Uh, suggestion that that sort of thing is happening? I'm not actually. I'm, I'm hearing that galleries are very much sticking to their usual mode of business in that they sell works in the currencies in the territories where the works are made. Right, exactly. So this is one thing that people may not know. As journalists, we have to do this every year and dealers hate this. But we're going, oh, so how much is that? You know, and they hate telling you. But the ones that do tell you will say, well, that's, say it's an Amy Sherald, academically that's in dollars she's an american artist so her work sells in dollars european artist sells in euros british artist sells in pounds exactly we have jade fadu jitimi here on gagosian's stand gagosian well obviously with galleries all over the world but largely an american dealer selling works by british artists and they're being sold in pounds right okay let's talk about jade because jade's an artist who is involved in a market phenomenon at the moment. It's called ultra-contemporary. Can you define ultra-contemporary? Can anyone define (laughs) ultra-contemporary? It's a relatively new term. There are often sort of terms bandied about in the art market, which I think don't maybe reach sort of more mainstream circles, but ultra-contemporary is a relatively new phenomenon. There was a report out just last week by Art Price, um, and they they categorise ultra-contemporary as works by artists who are under 40 now that comes with its own set of problems i mean ages sure but that's how they term it there are other terms that we use wet paint being another which it refers to works that are you know as you'd imagine fresh out of the studio yeah so it's really curious this isn't it because like i'm a critic and i don't, I don't think i've ever received a press release in which a gallery museum whatever has referred to the work in question as ultra contemporary it's completely a market term right I think so. Yeah, like you, I haven't heard it in critical terms. It's a neat term, isn't it? I mean, I think one of the the, the big factors behind this is, in fact, the auction houses. And, I mean, they never used to, going back 20 years ago, you weren't allowed to accept a work that was less than five years old. It just simply wasn't, you know, done. The auction houses very much dealt with secondary market territory, the galleries, the primary market. Those terms, boundaries roles are being increasingly blurred and you find now auction houses have entire sales dedicated to the new to the now Sotheby's began that in I think March this year their second is happening this week they're I think it's called now contemporary or something like that mm-hmm. Sotheby's again have introduced a, a new sales channel called artist choice where they are taking works directly from the artist studio so this is sort of uncharted territory and is creating this very sort of amorphous kind of mass in the market whereby the artist studio is now linked to the auction house, and that was never the case. In fact, you've done a report for the daily paper that we're distributing around the fair in which you've got some really quite interesting quotes about that. You know, dealers saying this phenomenon is absolutely present. We've got, we've got artists working away. It's going straight from that studio, straight into the auction house. It's a really interesting ecosystem, basically, right? Yes, exactly. The quote is from an anonymous dealer 
popular, quite a prominent one. Um, today, you can't divorce the market from the studio. The auction house is inextricably linked to the gallery, which is inextricably linked to the studio, and that's all linked to the public. And, and it's basically this great big biomass that feeds off each other. And you've been talking to... Lisa Schiff, who's an art advisor, who we talked to on this podcast, actually. She's quite sceptical about it all, isn't she? She is. Yeah, she is. She, she thinks that this frenzy really is purely about the money and she doesn't think there's sort of any art historical merit. Well, it, it's too early to work out who's going to sink and who's going to rise in this current boom. It used to be that, you know, an artist would have critical reception uh, museum shows before their market was inflated or, or, or even kick-started. And now we're getting quite the reverse um, where, you know, you might get a huge result at auction before a museum show. Yeah. Absolutely. What's interesting about Jade, actually, who's, who's absolutely a part of this, you know, as you say, work's being sold in pounds here, we think around 500,000 per right. painting. There's seven on the stand, so yep. do the maths, that's a lot of money. Mm-hmm. But she also has a show at the Hepworth Museum in Wakefield. She's in the Venice Biennale. So there is this interesting thing going on where it's, yes, it's market-driven, it's market but there is a presence beyond the market so it's curiously difficult to define and also to predict where they're going from here right yeah it's kind of the same scenario with the primary and secondary art market becoming one equally there's sort of this blurring of distinction between market success and critical success it's happening simultaneously and as you say it's quite hard to see what's going to survive or what's going to be sustained long term you mentioned this art price survey one of the interesting things is that we've been saying for years that the market is incredibly male-dominated, like shamefully male-dominated. <laughs> but this is showing a reverse trend, is that right? Absolutely. It's really fascinating. I mean, we should say at the top that the ultra-contemporary market, as defined by Art Price, only represents 2.7% of the overall art market, so it's still a relatively small percentage. Yet, within it, we are seeing a massive sea change. So, of the top 10 artists who hammered the highest prices in the first half of 2022... Seven of them are women, and we we are seeing the names like Flora Yuknovich, Avery Singer, Mario Berrio, Anna Wayne, Christina Qualls, Loie Hollowell. We've also got two artists from Africa and the diaspora, Amawako Boafo from Ghana, and the American Ivorian artist Abudia Diarasuba, featuring in that in that top ten. So it's a complete role reversal. It's quite radical, in fact. Yeah, and and, and obviously one of the things that Lisa in your piece identifies is the effect on artists, and this is also really curious, isn't it? Because actually the artists aren't inviting. Well, look. Some of them, I'm sure, are very much enjoying their market buoyancy. But I think it's also tremendous pressure on artists. Really, I mean, Jardet is 29 years old. That's a really, really young age to suddenly have all this market attention. You know, it's one thing having a, a curator who's interested in your work, wants to show it in a museum, to suddenly have prices for your work mentioned almost inextricably with the work itself. It feels like a lot of pressure for a young artist to experience it. I think so, and to create seven monumental scale paintings for an art fair probably within the space well certainly this year but probably in, within the space of a few months I think is is quite a lot of pressure I'm hearing a lot also I mean artists thrive in the studio and, and, and oftentimes don't want to sort of be connected to their market or talk about their market understandably so um, it can be you know it's a bit of a beast that sort of independently breathes and defecates <laughs> of its own accord um, 
But yes, there is a school of thought that actually, you know, this is quite a cynical move by some dealers and investors to speculate on these artists at a very young age. And, and in fact, it's just sort of for monetary financial gain that there's no sort of art historical backing or, or even sort of passion, old school passion in what, in what they're collecting. Right, indeed. In terms of like the kind of financial atmosphere, I mean, are we ever able through a fair to gain a real perspective on the kind of economic climate? Or is the kind of person who's buying art in an art fair never going to be wildly affected, actually, by economic downturns, etc.? Well, it's no secret that the art market rarely deals with the concerns of the 99%. And yes, there is the sense that, you know, we are in a bubble and, and, and people who are buying, certainly at the top level, are impervious and un- untouched by wider economic realities. The rule of thumb usually is is that the art market usually lags about a year behind wider economic realities. So we're yet to see any of that trickle down. But if we are heading into recession next year, which the news looks like we, we possibly are, then it's going to start having a real impact on the wealth of the super wealthy at a very broad level. And that will begin to severely impact buying habits. And one of the things that your piece touches on a little is about inflation and how that affects the market and there's this idea that actually buying blue chip art is something which is useful to do in an inflationary economic climate so what do dealers say today and also how does that affect the ultra contemporary Right. I mean, art is often seen as a good hedge in times of inflation because it doesn't correlate with, with the stock market. It's, 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 it's an independent thing and, and, it, and it's seen as holding its value. But that's if you're looking at blue chip artists. And when we talk about blue chip artists, we're looking at the major masters of the 20th century. When it comes to red chip, which is a market term, again, used to denote the ultra contemporary. Just sorry to interrupt, but is the red chip an allusion to like, you know, gambling, poker? It's a really good question, and I hadn't actually thought of it in those terms, but the analogy of gambling is often used in relation to the art market. I mean, you know, we, can, we could use a lot of those analogies, sticking or twisting, holding a work, but I think the, the consensus is with red chip art is that it's so new and it's, it's enjoying a bit of a boom, which means that there could potentially be a bit of a, a bust too, that it's volatile, and at, at, at this stage, I, think, I don't think there'd be anyone who'd be advising collectors to be investing in ultra-contemporary works in that way. And that's certainly the response I've been getting from dealers and art advisors I've been speaking to at the fair this week. Absolutely. I mean, we've said this often on this podcast, actually, when we've come to fairs. Obviously, the galleries are going to say, it's been going great. They're not going to say, it's been awful. But there does seem to be a general consensus that people have had a very good freeze, right? Yeah, I mean, people are saying that sales have been good. But the thing is with these fairs is that, and like Jade's work on Gagosian stand, it was all sold before the fair opened. Now, this is a really common thing now. You know, dealers send out PDFs to their clients well in advance of the fair. Some deals might be sealed on the day at the fair. But, you know, dealers are covering their backs. They're not going to come to a fair unless they've covered their costs and then some... Thank you so much. You're welcome. If you're at Freeze, you can read our live reporting in our daily papers at the fair, and you'll find all of the Freeze articles by Annie and the rest of the team online at theartnewspaper.com or on our app for Android and iOS, which you can download from Google Play and the App Store. Both Freeze London and Freeze Masters continue until Sunday.
What a year 2022 has been for Cecilia Vicuña, the Chilean artist and poet. She won the Golden Lion at the Venice Biennale, had a major exhibition at the Guggenheim Museum in New York, and is the latest artist to take on the UK's most prominent contemporary art commission for the Turbine Hall at Tate Modern. There, she presents Brain Forest Kipu, a multidisciplinary piece with two vast hanging sculptures accompanied by sound and video elements. Vicuña sees the components as distinctive forms of Kipu, an ancient Andean device that was used for everything from keeping records to recording astronomical systems and cosmologies. I went to Tate Modern as she was putting the finishing touches to her installation there to talk to her. Cecilia, you're back in London. London has a special significance to your life and work. Do you want to explain that? Yeah, I was a young kid and I loved cinema. And of course I loved art and poetry too. I loved the wilderness. But I once saw a film by Antonioni called Blow Up, filmed in London. And I saw that film and I saw this grey light where greens are very powerful. And since I am a woman of the greeneries, I fell in love with that colour range. And I said, hmm, that's a place I'd like to go to. Fascinating. And of course you studied here. You studied in London. Well, I, I learned that there was this grant by the British Council of Scholarship and I applied and I got it. And I was so young, I was below the age requirement. But they wanted to give me the grant and they lowered the range so I could get it. And so I arrived here with the British Council of Scholarship to do postgraduate studies at the Slade School of Fine Art. And the Slade School of Art had a very particular identity mm-hmm. at that time. And I wondered how you felt when you got there in terms of your own practice and the ideas that you were exploring and how they fitted into that kind of very kind of rigid structure that the Slade had at that time. Well, it definitely didn't fit. I knew nothing about that identity. They, when they said, in what school do you want to go? Imagine I was a Chilean girl, what would I know about what school? So I don't remember what caused me to pick a slate as opposed to any other school. And plus, um, they asked me then, uh, what kind of program within slate uh, you want to choose? And they had some program called non-diploma that had no requirements. That's the one I picked. And that meant that I was never at the slate. I was given a studio in a remote place in Stepney Green. And so I was never part of the actual slate. There was one professor that visited me every six months, and he hated everything I was doing, (laughs) and he actually insulted me. You know, he said, how do you dare paint like this? This is totally backward, totally ridiculous. And it's not an insult, I guess. It's just a strong dislike and rejection. How extraordinary. Is it right that you were in London when you heard about the military coup in Chile? That's right. I had only three months left of the grant. I was supposed to return to Chile in December and the coup was in September. So then my life fell apart completely. The whole universe I had known fell apart and I requested to stay in London. And because it was a conservative government, this government decided that all 
Chilean students, which were just a handful at the time, had to leave, were forced to go back to Chile. And so there was this wonderful organization of lawyers called something like the Civil Liberties Union. They defended people like myself for free. And so there was a trial of Cecilia against the Home Office or the Home Office against Cecilia. And they had to prove that if I would go back to Chile, I would be killed. And they used my book, the book that I had just published by Borges Press, Sabora Me, that was actually perhaps the first book to come out after the coup that spoke of the crime. And the judges, I will never forget that image, it was a line of men all white with their black gowns and their funny wigs, and they lift my book with great ceremony. One first, the second, there was a row of them, maybe three or four, and at the end of that they confer among themselves for like a few seconds, and then they say, asylum granted. Wonderful. Thank God for that. I wonder if you could explain the kind of culture that you had experienced in Chile before that, because there was a great hope in Chile before the coup. I think there was a great hope in the world and a lot of people in England were really looking to Chile because it was the first true experiment of a socialist elected government elected freely, democratically. And the revolution that Salvador Allende proposed was a revolution within the law. And nobody had had that chance as we Chileans had And it was so joyous, so free, so extraordinary that I only, I think, took the measure of how extraordinary Chile was when I landed in London. And I saw that here my impression was that the British people were so accommodated to the fact that no social change, no transformation was really possible because the powers that ruled England were so entrenched that people lived without the hope of change. And that hit me like like a wave of brutal sadness and depression. Now, of course, you're here making this work for the Turbine Hall in London. You're dealing with a different kind of tyranny, and it's the tyranny of the climate emergency. I wonder if you might talk about how one can deal with an issue so enormous and so potentially catastrophic through art and does your work still find space for the kind of hope that you were just talking about? It's a very good question and practically impossible to answer. I think we as humans, regardless of the horrors that we are confronted with, we need hope to breathe, to eat, to defecate, to exist It's just innate to us. I don't think our system, our circulatory system, can really function if we completely lose hope. And that's practically the only hope that we have, that we are built that way by a few million years of evolution. And so I think we have to hold on to that force that is stronger than us and exists in us. Because those powers that destroyed the revolution in Chile are the same powers that are now destroying the whole planet, you see. And it's exactly the same that continue to evolve to do more harm 
and gain more profit from it. And they have perfected this system to such an extent that if there was hopelessness in England back then, think of the hopelessness that exists now. It's just really brutal. If you look at that, let's say, coldly, as if we were visiting this planet and not immersed in its pain and beauty, we could see that when the balance of power between the needs of this planet to survive and this force is so outrageous that something's got to give. So I think it's going to give. I think some breakthrough is going to take place and we live for that every minute of the day. And if all of us do that, then we will enhance the possibility of that. At the heart of the Tate installation are multiple forms of what you call kipu. Can you tell us what that is? And in a way, what its origins are? Where does the kipu emerge from? I have to go back to the little girl, Cecilia. And I lived in a universe of beauty when I was a young girl because my family was a family of artists, intellectuals, philosophers, writers. And so there were lots of books. And we all live in the countryside in a sort of, even though this is a family, my paternal line is of European stock and my maternal line is indigenous. So this family is a mixed family with, I would say, most of them being of European, but not my particular, because this is a family more like a clan with grandparents and many aunts and uncles and tons of cousins and so forth. So even though we were considered Western-minded people, the way of life and the land itself had a different memory, had a different sensibility. So this girl found a kipu in a book of one of my aunts, who was a wonderful sculptor, who loved art books and lots of fantastic books that she would bring from Europe, from the US and so forth. And so the girl Cecilia finds a kibu to be a handful of little threads. And of course, I didn't read up much about it, but something in it completely caught my attention, caught my imagination within itself. So it's like I didn't find the kibu, but the kibu found this little girl. And so I began doing uh, this invitation. In other words, the kibu had sort of attracted me to such an extent that I suddenly began having kibu thoughts, kibu images, and I would be first writing them in poems, then I would be imagining them as virtual kibus that didn't exist in any physical plane, but only in the virtual plane. And then lastly, after many years, I began doing tactile kipus with threads and other elements. So I actually, for the date, have written a sort of kipu autobiography to tell this story because it's an astounding story of listening to what kipu wants to say. So eventually, many, many years later, I would say decades later, I encountered the bibliography and I began reading the theorization of Western people about the kibu, which I found utterly fascinating. 
and radically different from what I had learned just from following the imaginary field. So now, historically, what is kipu? Kipu means not in Quechua. And as far as we know, the oldest kipus are 5,000 years old. So who invented this? It must have been, in my opinion, a woman weaver that decided to to convert this into a, a recording system where some information would be encoded and then this is picked up by other people, both men and women. And then this incredible sophistication of what can be encoded in a knot is so majestic that now in quantum physics there is an astounding knot theory that confirms what I intuited the kipu to be. Amazing. And in the turbine hall, you have these tactile kipu that are huge, vast, tall kipus that hang from the top of the turbine hall ceiling, and they're all white. And this is a stark contrast to the ones that you showed at the Guggenheim recently, which were red. Can you tell me about that contrast? Yeah, because of the moment that we're living, and the minute I was invited, I knew that I wanted to focus on the forest. And if you look at the title that I created for this, the Brain Forest Kipu, the title comes from the fact that I think in the West we have a reductivist view of the brain, as if the brain were a sort of physical object that exists in us, and people study the brain and electricity and its ability to do you know, all these things like neural connections and things like that. But in truth, learning from the kipu, the ancient people created several kipus. The tactile kipu was one of them. Then they had a virtual kipu, a kipu where they imagined themselves connected to all communities in their known universe. And in turn, these communities connected to the sources of water in the top of the mountains. And in turn, this water connected to the origin of water in intergalactic space. So you see, that's the kind of kipu that interested me as an imaginary thinker or a thinker of images when I was a young girl. Where did I learn that? How did I learn that? From nowhere. That's in the air is available to all people who imagine, you know. So that tells you that there is another kind of brain where all imaginations are already wedded into. And I believe this is a perfect equivalent of the living network, the web of life that allows this planet to be. That's the brain forest. So the invitation from the Tate for me is an opportunity to speak of all those dimensions of the kipu because the turbine demands a different scale. A different scale of the imagination is not just for the sculpture. The turbine is for us to imagine a different kind of being in the world, a different kind of society, a different kind of connectivity. And did the Guggenheim, therefore, because one of the elements that critics picked up on was it was more bodily, perhaps, than one might assume when one sees the turbine hall, Kipu. Is that too easy an association or would you say that there is a connection to the human body in that sort of micro macro cosmology you're talking about 
Well, the Guggenheim has another gift, very different from the turbine and the Tate, which is a spiral. And the spiral is an ancient symbol that you find in every culture in humanity. But the particular spiral that inspired Frank Lloyd Wright, in my opinion, is his love for my architecture. And shortly before he designed it, Western archaeology had discovered, so-called, an Maya astronomical observatory that is a spiral staircase. So I imagine the imagination of Frank Lloyd Wright as being profoundly impacted by this spiral. So it is bodily in the sense that it's a grounded, small structure where everybody who walks into the Guggenheim feels this spiral. So I did all my work inspired because I studied architecture for a short while when I was young. And I love architecture. I'm very sensitive for me. A tiny sculpture or a majestic sculpture of 50 meters is the same. It's, it's not different to work in the tiny scale and in the magnet scale. The work here in London, you're working directly with a community of people from Latin America who are here in London. What prompted you to do that? Why did you want to work with those people? Well, when I lived in London for just three years during the 70s, and I related to London town as if it were an indigenous territory, because it was. Every piece of land in this earth was once indigenous territory. Some people have forgotten and some people remember. That's the main difference from the indigenous point of view. And so I always loved the Thames River. And uh, my studio, Stepney Green, was, in my view, very close to the Thames River, but at the time I never found access to the river. And so in recent decades, when I started to come back to London, I invited to do some poetry reading, some performance or some exhibition every now and then, I discovered that London had rediscovered the Thames, you know. And that made me so happy. And so I started to speak with the curators here, telling them that one of the things that I loved about the Tate, when they invited me, was the chance to involve the river somehow in the installation. And that I said, well, whenever I come and the low tide is there, I go down, I touch the river and so forth. And they said, oh, you know about mud larking? No. And so... I learned that there was a huge number of people involved in this ancient activity and that was this particular community of Latin American women who would be so happy to participate in this. So it was like they wanted to participate and I needed a group of people that would be happy to to volunteer to be gathering for me because I couldn't be here for the long stretch. So I needed hands, multiple hands, because this skip was constructed by very many hands. Maybe, I don't think we have counted them, but more than 20 hands, I would say. The interesting thing about that, of course, is that on the one hand, you have this sort of towering structure, but it's made of things which are small and you get that sense of a breadth of scale and the kind of poetry of a a grand gesture, but also the tiny 
handheld elements that you're talking about. That seems to me to be tremendously important in everything that you do. Yes, this is, is, is completely true that it is an artisanal process because it so happens that practically all the animal elements, all the plant elements in terms of fibers, in terms of threads, in terms of kinds of materials, all of them are endangered now. There isn't a single material that we count on that is not endangered by global warming, by this climate catastrophe that is already unfolding. So every little twig is precious and is already imbued with this love and appreciation for it and this need to be aware that everything is in danger, therefore we are in danger. So our lack of awareness is really becoming criminal towards ourselves, very self-destructive. So how do you deal with self-destructiveness if not through awareness and compassion at the same time for your own violence? Because we are so violent. It's not them. It's not others. It is us. No other than us ourselves. That is the point that I think the Kipu makes. That through encountering these materials that are so willing to be touched and that we want to touch because they are soft, they are vulnerable, they are hurt. And so that is innate in us to want to caress, to touch, to hold. The last question I wanted to ask was about your Venice display and the way that your sculptural installation there relates to the paintings. And I'd like to know how you see that relationship because the paintings were a very particular kind of language. But you can see those paintings through the sculpture, literally in in Venice. And tell me how you see that relationship. I had never been to Venice when I was invited to, but I somehow knew the history of Venice. I suppose I am in love with history. And I related to Venice the same way I was telling you about London. You know, I see the prehistoric uh, universe of the fishermen that first lived there. And their descendants are still living there, and they're still trying to fish in a lagoon that's being killed by the the Western pollution and contamination and the big boats and the tourists and so forth. And there are communities that are fighting to protect that. That, So that became to me the lens through which. So the paintings, I knew that the curators wanted paintings and I wanted to show the paintings. So to see the paintings through all this universe that is falling apart, that is drowning was crucial to me and so like I did here in London I did request to have a community of people from the Benito to pick twigs and grasses and remains of the life of the fishermen like cords like fragments of their fishing nets and so forth so they gathered for me this extraordinary amount of debris And to see the paintings through the debris was really something that I think touched a nerve, not only in my heart, but in the hearts of the Veneto people that were working with me. An atmosphere of joy uh, evolved through the, I suppose we spent like 
a little more than two weeks, almost a month working in this installation. And this feeling of care for this lagoon was very much present. So that's what I hope people will feel through the grasses, that the paintings are in between the grasses, not as individuals like in Western mind, but through, with and in. Cecilia, thank you so much. Thank you. The Hyundai Commission, Cecilia Vicuña, Brain Forest Kipu, is at Tate Modern in London until the 16th of April 2023. A series of events, a Kipu of Encounters, Rituals and Assemblies, begins at Tate Modern today, the 14th of October. Works by Cecilia Vicuña are at the Lehman Morpin stand in Freeze, London, and that's stand F2. Coming up, 20th century women artists in the spotlight at Freeze Masters and Modigliani up close at the Barnes Foundation. But first, here's this week's news bulletin. A painting at the National Gallery of Art in Washington, D.C., once thought to be by Vermeer, is now regarded as a misattribution or fake. New research shows that Girl with a Flute is not from the hand of the Dutch master, although it was probably made in his studio. This downgrading follows a detailed study of the six paintings in Washington that at various times have been regarded as Vermeer's. Three are now confirmed as fully authentic, two others have long been seen as forgeries, and Girl with a Flute is now regarded as a studio work. All the paintings are on view in the exhibition Vermeer's Secrets at the National Gallery until the 8th of January 2023. The opening of the British Museum's latest exhibition, Hieroglyphs Unlocking Ancient Egypt, was marked by protesters drawing attention to the imprisonment in Egypt of Allah Abd el Fattah. The British-Egyptian writer and activist, who's the nephew of the former British Museum trustee Adaf Suyef, is incarcerated in Torah after being charged with spreading fake news in December 2019. He's been on hunger strike since the 2nd of April. At the press viewing of the exhibition, protesters read passages from You Have Not Yet Been Defeated, an anthology of Abdel Fattah's assorted writings, some of which have been smuggled from his jail cell. And finally, the US Supreme Court began hearing oral arguments on Wednesday in relation to a copyright infringement case that pits the renowned music photographer Lynn Goldsmith against the Andy Warhol Foundation for the Visual Arts. In the hearing, Supreme Court justices questioned the foundation's claim that a lower appeals court wrongly discounted a changed meaning or message test in relation to Warhol's use of Goldsmith's photograph of the rock star Prince. Whichever way it falls, the justice's decision, due in the coming days, will have potentially huge implications for photographers and others who license creative works and the artists who appropriate or rework existing imagery. You can hear more about the Goldsmith Warhol Foundation dispute on our podcast from 24th of June this year and you can read more about all these stories on the website or the app. We'll be back after this. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Discover the Anne and Gordon Getty Collection, a symphonic tour de force of masterpieces drawn from one of America's most storied interiors at Christie's New York from the 10th to the 25th of October. This landmark series of 10 auctions offers nearly 1,500 superlative works of decorative and fine arts from some of history's most esteemed collections. Don't miss this rare opportunity to experience how English and European furniture by Vile, Chippendale and Grendel converses with works by Canal Leto, Claude Monet, Edgar Duggar and others. Find out more at christies.com slash getty. 
Welcome back. Now, this year's spotlight section of the Freeze Masters Fair is entirely dedicated to 20th century women artists. Our acting digital editor, Amy Dawson, went to the fair to talk to the curator of the section, the founder of the Paris-based organisation Archives of Women Artists Research and Exhibitions, or AWARE, Camille Moreno. Okay, so thank you so much for joining us. The Spotlight section shines a light on lesser-known artists who are in need of greater recognition. And this is the 10th anniversary for Freeze Masters. And so for this year's Spotlight, the section is huge. It takes up all down one side of the big white tent. Can you tell me how the Spotlight on Women Artists of the 20th Century came about and your curation with AWARE? Yes, it really was an invitation from the director of Freeze Masters, Nathan, who came to visit me in Villa Vassiliev in Paris, the place where Aware sits now. It used to be an artist studio of the 1920s. And Nathan came with a very quiet voice saying that he was going to celebrate, he speaks perfect French, the 10th anniversaire de Freeze Masters London. And he would be delighted uh, to invite Aware. And so, of course, I couldn't say no. I love Freeze Masters. It's been my favorite fair for a long, long time. So I was really honored to be invited. And I think somehow it's a good moment, even though there is a lot of exhibition of solo women artists in museums today and more women artists in galleries, but still far less valued than men, far less publication on them. So there's still a lot to do. So I think it's great. Uh, to have such a, an amazing space, as you say. We have 26 booths, and it's also a way to shine a light of Unaware, the non-profit I created eight years ago. Tell us a little bit about Aware for our listeners who don't know. Yeah, Aware is the um, acronym for Archive of Women Artists Research and Exhibition, and the word archive is important because I believe that to write a different history, you have to have a fair and solid archive. Most of the archive in art history is about men. You find a lot of information about men, but quasi no information on women. And I realized that in 2009, when I was working on Elle at Centre Pompidou, the first permanent collection show with only women artists, a lot of these artists I was showing came from the storage, from the collection, but I had no information about them. So I decided to create a website, a very easy-to-use website, bilingual, free, with um, biographical information and also information about the work of the women artist, with a lot of photos, but also research articles. We have today 950 biographies of women from all over the world, from the five continents of the 19th and 20th century. It's unique in the world. And it's, I think, very well used in the sense that we have more than 70,000 users per month, which is quite a lot for um, an academic website. We also have content for children, short animation movies. So I'm really happy about that, about the fact that AWARE has reached a new level. We have a space in Paris. We are close to a thousand biographies. And, of course, we're invited in Freeze Master, which is the acme of my adventure. And it's significant the fact that we're in an art fair and this whole endeavour in this tent is about selling work as well as appreciating it. So are all the works here for sale? 
Absolutely, and that's really important for me because I believe that today the galleries, some of them, uh, especially the one that we selected, I really like art historians. They are doing research on the artist, taking the risk of showing them, uh, writing sometimes books or small catalogues or even articles on these artists. So I believe that the gallery and the market is a very important step in the recognition of an artist. And if women artists are undervalued today, if it's because they haven't had galleries for many of them. So it's really nice to show that and to um, demonstrate how important a fair is, even in the history of art. And what kind of price ranges can we expect to see in this section? Well, there's no prices yet, so I can't really say for sure. But I think we'll have all the prices ranging from not too expensive to a little bit more expensive, never as expensive as the blue-chip men. But it's also because we didn't choose blue-chip women. We could have been showing much more expensive women artists. We wanted to show artists who need more recognition, who can be discoveries, even though I don't like the word discovering, it's more like encounters, a rediscovering because a lot of these women artists have been uh, quite successful and recognized during their lifetime or in their country. They just need um, a more international recognition and that's what Freeze Master is about, I think. Tell me about how you selected the 26 solo presentations that are here. Well, it was, as always, I think for Spotlight, an open call and we got a lot of uh, application, I think like... 10 times the number we could accept so we had to select and we did that within AWARE which is a collective non-profit but also working with the fair of course there was a jury and it was a pretty serious jury so we had to really explain and uh, interact a lot with the fair team and so we ended up I think with an interesting selection of a global list of artists coming from different parts of the world every continent with every techniques represented from photography to drawing with painting sculpture video installations just to show that women artists even though starting at the beginning of the 20th century were using all these techniques and they're ranging from abstraction to political art different kinds of abstraction and it was hard to select them and we also selected the galleries that stuck to the spotlight chronology, which is, uh, of course, the, the 60s up to the 80s and 90s. So it's an historical section, which, of course, resonates with uh, Freeze Masters. It's also a very interesting period where women artists were really out there, present and visible, not always in all the continents. So I think, it was, I think the, the result would be interesting for the visitors, mm-hmm. I hope. Have you grouped them in any way by time or thematically in the presentation at the fair? We grouped them uh, more visually. So I think going from one booth to another or across one booth to another, there will be visual echoes. There's actually three conceptual chapters in the selection. One is about abstraction, but different kinds of abstraction. You'll find geometrical abstraction, lyrical or gestural abstraction. There's one section that I call the fighters, which is about political involvement of women artists. It can be feminism, it can be reflection on the political situation. 
And the last chapter is called The Irreducible, because they cannot be classified, really. So it was a little bit frustrating for me as an art historian, but I had to acknowledge the fact that they cannot fit in any categories because they had an eccentric practice and or they wanted to remain really individual and personal. Mm, I guess breaking out of the canon is really what we're aiming to do anyway. Absolutely. So perhaps now we can go and have a look at some specific works and talk in detail about the artists and the pieces. Okay. So yes, the spotlight really starts with this amazing installation called The Cold Room by Mary Kors, represented by Pace Gallery. It was conceived in 1968, but realized for the first time in 2017 for a solo show at the Corcoran Gallery. It's presented here in the UK for the first time, so it's really something strong, I think. It's an installation you have to feel. From outside, it looks like a white box, but you have to come inside. It's freezing cold, but it's also a light piece. And uh, she's using Tesla coil-powered light box within the air-conditioned room. So it's not the Marie Kors people are used to. She's known as a minimal painter using a special kind of painting that reflects light. This time it's really a very uh, multi-dimensional sensorial piece that will, I think, somehow launch the spotlight section, I hope. My next choice is that work of Nike Davis Okundae, represented by Co Gallery in Lagos. And it's work dating from uh, 1987, It's called Batik of Osun. Osun is a goddess of the Yoruba culture and it's made of adire. Adire is a special dyeing technique of indigo that Nike revived and she's actually head of a group of, of, of artists called Adire Revival in Nigeria. So it's very representative of her work and also of, of female empowerment. It's a woman reigning over the world Looking at her, you can feel how strong she is. Uh, she's a hybrid between an animal and a human. And she's reigning with two kind of tools, or we don't know exactly what it is, uh, weapons or sculpture. And the work is really visually strong, and but also super simple and efficient. And it's great that at the same time that we're kind of rediscovering, as you said, female artists we can also bring in the diversity of other countries that have perhaps been also overlooked in the art historical canon absolutely and uh, actually nigeria is a very vivid scene in in africa where a lot of women artists have been uh, successful and visible so it's interesting um, to look differently on the history of women artists in africa and aware has a special program on african women artists My next choice is Orshi Drozdik, represented by Inspired Fine Art. That's a work from 1980 uh, that she reworked in the 1990s. There are photographs taken during the artist's long research period in Museum of Natural History. The world questions scientific objectification of the female body. It's about also the fact that museums fetishize objects and also the fact that the way women's body was used or not used in science 
is also becoming a, a real subject today. The fact that medicine is based on uh, men's body much more than women's body. Mm. So her work is about that and it's really an installation that you look at from a lens that is placed far from the painting and in between the lens and the photo you have an installation of white objects that look like either teeth or bones or stones, something in between. So you really feel like you're sort of yes looking at a small object within a natural history museum but it's really thinking about history and the way the female body was used or not used or badly used in museums mm. and did it feel important to include artists from eastern europe given the current political situation that we're facing actually it did and i have to say we're careful to introduce quite a lot of them to make also a political stance. A lot of my team comes from Central and Eastern Europe, actually. I have a, a Polish and a Romanian colleague. So we're all really uh, traumatized by what's going on and also wanted to show that it used to be and still is a very strong art scene where women artists have been radical, had to work under uh, very repressive political regimes. So they had a radical practice, including political performance, conceptual work, such as Oshi's work. And so this has to be rediscovered. So yes, of course, Leonor Fini was a must-see for us. It's represented by the gallery Love & Co. And we're standing by a portrait of Lino Inverniti from 1944. It could be painting today, I think. It's representing a man in an Italian Renaissance style. But the man is really androgynous. He's dressed into a sumptuous clothing that feminizes him. Uh, he has especially a plume that resembles long hair. So it's ambiguously erotic, uh, very typical of Fini's work, who's been playing with eroticism pretty openly in all her work, changing stereotypes, representing men as women, as odalisques, with powered female bodies over them, dominating them. So for me, it's a proto-queer work, which resonates very strongly with today's gaze on art and today's queer world and queer art and non-binary practices. Mm. So I think she's really interesting and a very strong artist. And the booth looks wonderful. Yeah, this booth is spectacular. Even the wallpaper, which is... Which she designed. Yeah, really. And she also designed jewelry. So you have an example of that sort of strange object, which are horns that you can wear as a bracelet or a necklace or as horns on your head. And it was presented in the 1970s with mannequins such as this one. And as she closed herself, if I may speak so, she was a very eccentric character with an eccentric life. Uh, she had many lovers at the time. She lived with a thousand cats, etc., etc. So she was really a personage. Yeah, and I think that people are so fascinated by surrealism and it's a really good way to be able to you know approach this sector if you love surrealism you'll love 
this booth and Lena Fini's work. Yes, and there are other artists which could be affiliated to surrealism. Although in the case of Lena Fini, she didn't want to be a surrealist. She really refused to be part of the movement in a very strong and political way because it was a movement headed by a man, André Breton, who although he said that les femmes sont l'avenir de l'homme, he didn't really defend them within the movement. So somehow I think she was right not to be part of the group. Well, there's lots of fantastic female artists to discover here, lots of strong work and strong characters, as you say. Thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you for your interest. Finally, it's time for the work of the week. On Sunday, the Barnes Foundation in Philadelphia opens Modigliani Up Close, a show featuring more than 60 works by the Italian artist. Among them is Boy in Short Pants, made in 1918. And I spoke to Simonetta Fracelli, a consultant curator on the exhibition, about the painting. Simonetta, we're going to talk about Boy with Short Pants by Modigliani. It was one of a group of paintings that he made in the south of France. It's a particularly important moment for his work, isn't it? Can you tell me why? Yes, Modigliani goes to the south of France in the spring of 1918. Paris is being bombarded, his health is failing, and his then dealer, somebody called Leopold Zborowski, decides that he would take his charge out of the fray and take him down south. Many other artists were also going down south at this time. So Zborowski thought that this might be a good idea to take Modigliani and maybe it would help his health as well. And whilst he's in the south of France, he does paint a group of paintings. Actually, I think it probably is one of the most prolific years of his career. He paints several portraits. At the time, he didn't really have access to many professional models. So he tended to paint either those in his close circle, his companion Jean Boutin or Zborowska's companion Hanka, but also young peasant children or the children of friends of his that he knew in the south of France. So there's a shift in the types of portraits he's painting at this time. There's also a shift in the formats that he's using. We believe that Zborowski at this point probably is sending him canvases from Paris. Um, Zborowski returns to Paris after he accompanies Modigliani. And so there is a kind of standardization really in the portraits at this particular point. They tend to be marine canvases. What does that mean, marine canvases? Yeah, marine canvases. So there are standard formats of canvases that you could buy at this time in France. And marine canvases tended to be used for seascapes. So they tended to be like um, horizontal uh, canvases, like a landscape, for example, but even more uh, elongated in the horizontal form. He would so we use, might say sort of widescreen now, effectively. Like widescreen, you could say that. And he would use these, but he would turn them on their side, so which seemed to help his more elongated forms of his style. Which one came first? I think it was probably a choice at this point because he probably through Zborowski could have chosen which kind of formats to have. And obviously he favored that elongated style. So he would turn the marine canvas onto its side. And you can see that in the portraits of the period where they have the slightly elongated features. I I tend not to talk too much about the exaggerated features because I think it's a little bit of a misnomer. There is a kind of progression in Modigliani's work. Certainly, though, however, by 1918, 1919, you're tending to see slightly more elongated, stretched out forms in the figures. Now, one of the things that he does is he paints lots of children, doesn't he? You say he has limited access to models at that stage. And so a lot of them are children. 
the boy with the short pants that we're going to talk about, do we know who the boy with the short pants is? Well, that's a very interesting question because traditionally one's always kind of talked about these paintings as being kind of archetypes of the kind of these rural young children that he would have painted which with a certain monumentality, elevating their status through these portraits. As time has gone on, as you know, art history is always a changing discipline, one could say. It's never static. And I like to think that, you know, we might find out more in the future. But from research that I actually carried out when I worked on the Tate Show in 2017, the Modigliani Tate Show then with my colleague uh, Nancy Ison, I did do some research. And I believe that this is a portrait of a young boy called Nanik Osterlund, who happened to be the son of Anders Osterlund, a Swedish painter who was a friend of uh, Modigliani's. He knew him in Paris and he was also in the south of France. So it's very likely. And also this young boy is painted in a slightly more elegant manner than other of the young peasant boys. If you compare it, for example, to the peasant boy at the Tate, who's very much, you know, uh, rough and ready in terms of his clothes. And he looks very much like a, a kind of farm worker or country worker. This young boy has a slightly more elegant jacket. He has this kind of mop of yellow blonde hair. He's sitting in a more elegant chair. I mean, there's reason to believe that this is a child who he knew and he knew personally and who he kind of had set up in his studio or in wherever he was painting to do his portrait. And of course, one of the big things about him being in the south of France is, of course, that's Cezanne territory. And Cezanne sort of comes back into his work at this stage with a bang, doesn't he? Absolutely. Um, as you're right, and Cezanne was his kind of first love when he arrived in Paris. He saw his posthumous exhibition in 1907, and it, he was one of the great kind of influences on his work. Which you see in some of the early works, I mean, certainly up till 1909, there is evidence of him looking at Cezanne. Then it seems to go away, as one can say, or at least become, let's say, a less important factor. But by the time he goes to the south of France, you feel that he's really connecting with the, you know, with the, with the, the master of Aix-en-Provence. You really feel that he's connecting with that kind of portraiture. And in fact, in our exhibition, we do have two portraits where you see a young boy leaning against a table and it very much in a pose that was kind of straight out of Cezanne. So he, he's clearly looking again at Cezanne at this moment. And, and even in the colors and the types of colors he's using the in the portraits, there's an echo. And another aspect which has been quite interesting is in terms of the way the certainly this painting is constructed, but also the other young peasant children, he tends to paint in blocks of colors up to the edge of an outline in an area of color and then go to another area of color rather than mixing them. And that's something that Cezanne did as well. So again, he's looking, I think, at Cezanne and the way he was painting as an inspiration at this point. That's really interesting. So the work is part of this big show that you've got at the Barnes. Is it right that the Tate show was a kind of instigating factor in how you're now thinking about this show? Uh, yes, I think there is a relationship. I mean, the Tate show was very much about situating Modigliani in a historical moment of this young person coming to Paris, what he would have seen in Paris, how he would have developed his style in Paris. Uh, you know, he was 21 when he got to Paris and he was only 35 when he died. So one has to remember that he was a young man. But when we did the Tate show, my colleague Nancy and I thought, well, this is an opportunity to actually look closely at the Tate works. And we're bringing all these works to London. Why don't we start looking at others as well? It was not such a, a formalized approach as we've had for this show, but it was the idea of let's work with conservators. Let's try and understand more about how he's making his works. And from that, we built this kind of collaboration, not only with conservators at the Tate and at the Barnes, because Nancy subsequently came to work here, but also with a 
a huge number of colleagues in museums in America, in museums in the UK, in Europe. We joined also forces with a, a French study of the works in French museums. So really kind of pooling information and uh, working together. And this exhibition is really a collaboration. Our catalog has, I think, I don't want to oversay, but I think like over 60 authors, all the museums who lent to us have uh, written their own entries, have done their own research. So it's really been a collaborative project. Tell me about what you're learning through all this. As we say, there's been a big Tate show in 2017, but Giuliani is a much written about, much discussed artist. Surely we know pretty much everything there is to know. What have you found out? Well, he, there's a lot of literature on Modigliani, whether or not we know a lot. I mean, but he, he didn't leave really any information about how he made his work. So one's had to glean through other sources, through contemporary writers or friends of his. There's also been a lot of myths around his work, a lot of stories that have come up. But there have been a few things that have really intrigued me. I mean, I'll give you an example. We've done a study of the sculptures here in this exhibition, which we didn't do for Tate Papers, another forum where we published information about his, his working practice. And there were stories about how he would put candles on the top of his sculptures in his studio and create this kind of temple effect in his atelier. And we have found, certainly on the Barnes sculpture and also a sculpture that belongs to the Philadelphia Art Museum, accretions of wax. Mm-hmm. So kind of corroborating a story that was in the literature, but we didn't really know. Similarly, there have been stories about him, certainly with the sculpture again, of finding pieces of stone on building sites. Now, by looking closely at the sculptures, it's clear that some of them have these kind of worked edges that are a mason's working edges, so that they may have been pieces of a building, like a lintel or the side of a door or something, kind of thin, tall pieces that he took. Now, again, did he take the thin, tall pieces because that's the way he wanted to do his sculptures? Or did it happen that he took the thin, tall pieces and thought, (laughs) okay, I'll make my sculptures long? The jury's out on that. But what I'm saying is that there have been stories in the literature that it has been difficult to corroborate. And some of our research has done that. Absolutely. And the thing is that we really do want to get close to these figures, exactly because they become subjects of myths, like you say. We want to find the real person again, because when I think about Modigliani, there's so much about his kind of tempestuous life, his ill health and so on. It's actually nice to focus on him as a painter and and the physical stuff that he actually produced. Yes. I mean, very much in this show, there is that sense of the artist as maker. And what was he making and how was he making and how was he using the tools and the availability of materials around him to create certain images? Going back to the boy with short pants, it's on a commercially primed canvas with a white priming. That one tends to find after late 1917, 1918. Prior to that, he's often reusing canvases that he had used, that he had painted on or that other artists had painted on. This commercially used canvas that he uses for this particular painting and the white priming gives the image a kind of luminosity, gives it a kind of freshness, which is characteristic of those paintings painted in the south of France. And he often leaves the ground, the kind of the layer of paint, the priming, he leaves it visible, which gives a kind of luminosity to the image. They're much more thinly painted as well, aren't they? Is it, and much yeah. more thinly painted, much more dilute paint. I mean, Is that because he was trying to get a certain effect? Almost like the Tate peasant has a kind of, the study has shown that it has a casein in it, like like a tempera base to it. So it's almost like a kind of fresco effect Mm. that that it has, a a very matte, that painting isn't varnished. And majority of paintings probably weren't varnished by him. They were varnished subsequently. 
So again, it gives a very different feel. This is relating to his the light of the south of France, him looking back to Italy, his being nostalgic for his past. There are very many aspects that one could bring in here, but by knowing these things, by the physicality of them, one can then maybe deduce other things as well. Of course, one of the things about all those artists going to the south of France during the First World War, some of them went back reasonably quickly, but Modigliano, he seemed to stay there for a bit longer than some of them. Was that because health-related issues or was that because he was really thriving in the way that you were saying? I think it's probably a combination. I mean, he does stay for well over a year. And it's true that, you know, he's there after the armistice in, in November. But then again, that's when his daughter is born in November 1918. And Jean is with him. Jean Ibutel, who's also a young painter, but is his companion by now. Uh, it's possible that they decided to stay also because she just had the baby mm. and they continued, they stayed on. There are kind of lifestyle factors, but I'm not sure that his health, I mean, one can't really tell him. Mean, he dies, you know, six months after he comes back from the south of France. And whether that was related or coincidence, it's difficult to tell. Maybe his health was already deteriorating. But he certainly was productive in the south of France, certainly more than he had been during the war years. Um, but again, that may be related to availability of materials, availability of models, you know, lots of different things. In art history, there are lots of great painters of children. One thinks of Titian's paintings mm. of children as being particularly vibrant. Where would you say Modigliani fits in the, among that crowd? Because it seems to me that, that they're a really charming aspect of his work that is often under-discussed. Yes. I mean, I have to say, when I worked for the Tate show, I did a text specifically on the south of France, and I really kind of came to fall in love with these paintings. I think they are amongst his not only most charming, but actually best painted. I mean, he has that, such a sureness in the way he's painting at this point there's really have the sense that it's all coming together and that he's able to build on previous experiences on his sculptural experience because obviously you have to remember that the sculpture really does inform the paintings that come after them i mean he stops probably in 1914 making sculptures but the paintings that come after are definitely informed by the sculptures so one really gets the sense that it's all beginning to come together at this point sadly doesn't last very long because we know he dies but um, i think they are I mean, personally, I find it the most interesting period of his work. But, you know, that's my personal experience and it might change. But at the moment, that's the, that's the area I'm, I'm most interested in. Well, Simonetta, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. OK, well, thank you for having me. Modigliani Up Close is at the Barnes Foundation in Philadelphia from the 16th of October until the 29th of January 2023. And that's it for this episode. We're on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. The Week in Art is produced by Amy Dawson, Henrietta Bentel and David Clack. And David also does the editing and sound design. Thanks also to Daniela Hathaway and to our guests, Annie, Cecilia, Amy, Camille and Simonetta. And thank you for listening. See you next week. Bye for now. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime.